So the word today, I'm going to be preaching today on a very small topic, not at all. I'm preaching today on the kingdom of God. My goodness, the kingdom of God. I believe if a preacher attempted to preach on the kingdom of God every Sunday for a year, they would not be able to teach everything that we need to know and understand about the kingdom of God within that time. It is a vast subject. But there are some things I want to bring this morning. I believe the Lord wants us to hear this morning. Did you know that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or his kingdom 155 times in the Gospels? He spoke about this more than any other subject in the Gospels, his kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God? As soon as you mention the kingdom of God, there's some scriptures that just jump into your mind. You think about the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus instructs us that we should pray for this kingdom to come. We're praying for a revolution where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus tells us that, that we should seek first the kingdom of God. What an instruction that is. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all other things will be added unto you. Sounds easy, doesn't it? But it's such a challenge at the same time. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be taken care of. Kingdom of God is a kingdom. Pretty simple. Every kingdom has a king. But this kingdom is different. It's an eternal kingdom. I shall go to the handheld mic. We're going to all systems go? Yes. Okay. It's a kingdom, and every kingdom is a king. But this eternal kingdom is a bit different. This king is a bit different. It's not working either. Ah, there we are. It's, it is in and out. Wow. Everybody start praying for a new sound system. That would be awesome. Yeah. Not working? Yes, yes. Okay. If the sound system goes out and I don't notice, start waving your hands. That'd be great. Okay. So, this kingdom has a king, a very different king to any other kingdoms. For this king is the king of kings. Our own queen in this country says that she follows a king, and it's the king Jesus. It's a different kingdom. Jesus spoke himself to Pontius Pilate to say, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this earth. These things, very, these very short statements, my goodness, we could ponder them for a very long time and learn lots and lots from each of these statements. That's not the main message today. This king, who was the king of kings, our very own queen says she follows this king. This king did not come to be served like any other king. He came to serve. He even humbled himself in such a way that he washed his disciples' feet. He took the filth and the dirt 
off of their feet. What king would do that? And for all of us, he went to that cross on Calvary and he washed all the filth of our sin away. Every single one of us, forever. A done deal. It's finished. He's accomplished it. It's done. Amazing. I could talk about these things forever. I'm going to focus on some other things about the kingdom of God. We're going to look at three verses, first of all, that Jesus shared about his kingdom. First of all, uh, Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 1, Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples. Now, Jesus in his ministry has been modeling to his 12 disciples, this is what I want you to do. Watch me, everything I do, everything I say, because it's going to be your shot next. Because I won't always be here. I'm teaching you. So he models to them everything to do with his kingdom and his kingdom coming. So in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus had called the 12 disciples together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure all diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God. I only focused on that pretty recently. I always thought when Jesus sent out the 12, I always thought in my head, he said, go out and share the gospel. It specifically says, go and preach the kingdom of God. That is his main instruction to his 12. The 12 that he was teaching, his senior leadership team. This is your focus, boys. Go and do it. I'm going to give you all the power and all the authority to bring signs of the kingdom, to cast out evil, to heal all sickness, all diseases, and preach the kingdom of God. Then in Luke 10, reading from verse 9, in Luke 10, verse 9, Jesus not only is teaching the 12, his senior leadership team, he's got his next group, his extended leadership team of 72. 72 people, and he's been modeling to them, watch me, watch what I do, everything I say, Everything I do, I'm teaching you. I'm teaching you. Now Now it's your turn. And he says to the 72 in Luke chapter 10, verse 9, Heal the sick who are there and tell them that the kingdom of God is near you. Tell them that the kingdom of God is near you. So he gives other instructions before that, just like he did the 12. I'm giving you power. I'm giving you authority. Now go and do it. But not all of you to preach that the kingdom of God. Tell them that the kingdom of God is near. Because every time that we experience a healing, someone using a spiritual gift, it is a sign and a taste and a flavor of the kingdom of God. And the third verse I would like to share is Luke chapter 17, reading from verse 21. Luke chapter 17, verse 21. In fact, we'll go to verse 20. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, 
The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. What a strange saying. The kingdom of God is within you. A couple of things I really want to share about, about this. The second part where Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. I remember many years ago when I was a young Christian. I think I was about 19 at the time. And I met a guy called Danny McVicker. Does anybody remember Danny McVicker? I met Danny McVicker for the first time. I heard him speak. I was blown away by how bold this guy was um, and how confident he was and how effective he was in ministry. And after he'd been sharing his testimony, he invited the time in ministry and said, anyone wants prayer, come forward and I'll pray with you. And I was desperate to go and um, get prayer from him. And I said to him, I want what you've got. Because I could see this anointing on him. And I wanted to be effective for God. I said, I want what you've got. And what he said to me, it really confused me. He said, you've already got it. Eh? I said, no, no, you, you don't know me at all. He says, I can tell you, son, you've already got it. <laughs> Was that a good Danny impersonation? I'm telling you, son, you've already got it. Eh? I said, no, but I want what you've got. I can't do what you do. He says, the kingdom of God, son, is within you. Let's pray that I'll be released fully into your life. I don't know why I'm doing an impersonation here. <laughs> I didn't understand that at the time. The kingdom of God was, is within me. And we're going to pray for it to be released. I thought an anointing was something that came down from heaven. But here's Jesus himself saying, the kingdom of God is within you. I believe that when we are made, when God makes us, he makes us, it says we are made in his image. God is unique and he's made each and every one of us absolutely unique. And when he made us, I believe he took a little bit of his own DNA and put it inside us to say, this is the purpose I'm creating you for. You're going to reveal me to the world in a way nobody else ever could. You're special. There is a purpose for your life. And I believe it's like an investment, a deposit he puts in us. And I believe Jesus is saying, and kind of confirming this, it's already within you. All you need to do is make yourself available and ask for it to be released because it was the purpose for which you were created. The kingdom of God is within you. Now, there's a warning in this statement as well before that, when he's saying to the Pharisees, you know, Jesus, the only people he had an issue with, the only people he ever challenged, the only people he ever got angry with were those people in religious positions who were abusing their position with God or were missing the point and were leading people astray. So he has a wee jibe at the Pharisees here and says, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations. The Pharisees were very, very religious. They were all about keeping the rules and forgetting about the rule maker. The observation of rules became religious. It became constrictive. And they thought they were the leading lights in that generation. Now, the warning that comes with this is there's a warning for each and every one of us that as we draw closer to God, sometimes we can get a little bit off the track, where we become 
a little bit too religious. Where we are so absorbed in God's scriptures and his rules that we become the God police. And when anybody crosses a line, we're the first ones there to point the finger and say, you're wrong. Stop what you're doing. You're wrong. Jesus says that is not the way. I'll give you a couple of examples here. The time that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus and they bring before Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And they say to him very confidently, the Mosaic law says this woman should be stoned to death. She has crossed a very big line and the law is very clear. She should be stoned to death for committing adultery. What do you say? And Jesus, observing the rule maker, says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they all drop the stones and walk away. Because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all crossed those lines. How dare we be God's police and stand out and say to people, you're wrong, you're a sinner. Well, we're all sinners. But some of us see that as, a, as our role in the Christian community. Once watched a Christian documentary. Has anybody ever seen the Darren Brown films? Anybody ever heard of them? Uh, the Furious Love of God. Um, Finger of God. Anybody ever heard of these? Absolutely fantastic Christian documentaries. And I really recommend them to you. But one of the documentaries, Darren Brown goes to... Um, he was, he was going to see someone when he actually came across a demonstration by Christians. He came across and realized, oh my goodness, this is a, there's a gay pride um, parade going through the town. And there was hundreds of Christians there with placards. And he went and interviewed one of them. And this guy had a placard that says, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That was his placard. And... Darren Brown interviewed the guy and says, how long have you been doing this kind of work, you know, coming to do demonstrations like this? He says, I've been doing it for 20 years. 20 years. Every time I hear of one of these parades, I'm there with a placard. He says, and, and, and the guy said, because God's word says, and he clearly mentions a few things. They said, well, God point, points out that God thinks this is wrong. It's a sin. It's an abomination. And Dan Brown said, you know, you're right, I suppose. But see, how many people have came to faith by the work that you're doing in the 20 years? He says, nobody. He says, how many conversations you had with people? Hundreds. And then Dan Brown went and interviewed one of the guys on the parade. and said, what do you think of these Christians out here? And he says, I don't like Christians. They hate us. What a statement. Dan Brown says, I love my brother's because they are my Christian brothers, but I don't like the way that they present my father. My father is a God of love. Yes, there is sin in this world. Yes, we must stand up against sin. But Jesus, whenever sin was presented in front of him, like the woman who was caught in adultery, he didn't say, yep, you're absolutely right. She's bang out of order. Give me one of those stones. Jesus was all about reaching the lost. As were the guys out there with the placards. They wanted to reach the lost. But you have to question the methodology. If they have never, ever brought anyone to faith, 
And we have to look at ourselves and reflect upon ourselves. Are we being Christ-like in the work that we do as we represent our Father? Are we being Christ-like? The kingdom of God is where we have a relationship with God. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. The kingdom of God is within you. And we only feel that kingdom, we only receive that kingdom, we only experience that kingdom when we make ourselves fully available to it 100% and ask God to take over our lives. I've been a Christian for 30 years now. Wow, 30 years. I'm starting to get some gray hairs. 30 years. And when I was a young Christian, when I was just really getting into Christianity, um, I came across a Christian writer called Tony Campolo. Has anybody ever heard of Tony Campolo? I read all of his books when I was a teenager. Uh, Tony Campolo is a professor of sociology, but he's also been a spiritual advisor to, I think, three American presidents. And one of my friends really introduced me to Tony Campolo. And I read his books, and I found them so encouraging and so instructional. He was quite a character, um, quite a funny guy, a guy that was full of life, because the kingdom of life, the uh, kingdom of, of God was fully within him. Some of the funny and daft things he used to do, which I tried to replicate with mixed results, was, <laughs> um, he says, you ever, you ever get into a lift, or as he would say, an elevator? You ever get into an elevator and it, it's absolutely stuck full and everybody's shoulder to shoulder and it's, everybody's quite embarrassed and they try not to make eye contact and they just try to get through the whole experience, wait for the doors to open and they get back out. He says, I love making people feel a bit awkward. So he says, I love getting in there. He says, I love it. And I always going backwards and I wait for the doors to shut. And as soon as they're shut, I turn around and say, you're probably wondering why I've called this meeting here today. <laughs> oh, I tried it once. <laughs> I got out on the next floor. <laughs> I also love when he said that I used to, whenever you drive up to those uh, toll booths and reading about that toll booth. Ah, what's a toll booth? That's when you go up and you pay when you want to get through to continue on your, your journey. And at that time, the fourth road bridge had a toll booth. And he says, go to the toll booth, he says, and pay double money and say, that's for my good friend in the car behind me. And when you drive off, drive off slowly and look in your rear view mirror as you see the guy in the toll booth try to explain, you've already been paid for by your good friend. No, your good friend, the boy in the car in front of you. So uh, I tried that. Um, actually, once I drove up to Fourth Road Bridge and a couple of friends, our youth group from the church, were going to Burnt Island. And I was in the first car and we got there and uh, we'd all been enjoying the worship on this tape in the car. They'd tell how long ago this was a tape. <laughs> a tape in the car. And I ejected the tape and I gave it to the guy in the toll booth and I says, can you give this to the car behind me and tell me to play track number three? So they did. So it was all, I love doing that kind of stuff. And I would never have thought of that unless... Tony Campolo had kind of actually grabbed my attention. One of the books he wrote was a book called Who Has Switched the Price Tags? And it's all about how in this world, for some reason, this world has got things upside down. 
things that should be of no value, this world puts immense value on. And things that should be of immense value, it's like the price tags have been taken off and it's been put in the sale. In Luke chapter 16, verse 15, it says, What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. This world, the kingdom of this world, places a lot of value on the love of money, success, fame, fortune, designer clothes, the big mansion, the big car, the fancy holidays, positions in companies and organizations, success, academic success, sporting success. I work in sports psychology and some of the people I work with, one of the players I work with or did work with gets paid three million pounds a year to kick a football. Society says you're worth so much, you're worth three million pounds a year to kick a football. It does take skill and it takes hard work to get there and it's a short um, career, etc. However, I think of some of the people I work with in, in charities. And I think, oh my goodness, the work you do is so valuable. It's life-changing. It's wonderful. It's amazing. And you get paid peanuts. I don't understand it. I do a lot of work in schools and the people support workers. I love the work that the people support workers do, but they get paid peanuts and yet they're changing lives and helping society. The society says that's not really worth very much. You'll get paid almost minimum wage for that. I once worked with a man who was a self-made millionaire. Guy came from a working class family and he made a great success of himself. His company that he started within 20 years, 25 years, got to a 50 million pound turnover. He was making about 7 million pounds profit a year. He had the big mansion. In fact, he had several mansions. He loved shooting. And so he bought a farm down in the borders in Scotland just so he could shoot privately. And then he thought, that's quite, I'm getting a wee bit bored of that. So I'll buy a farm up in the Highlands. So I've got an options for my weekends where I go. And he was an A-lister at the big parties. He traveled the world. I got very close to him and he said, Stephen, I am absolutely depressed. I have so much regret in my life. I did this for my family and yet I missed my kids growing up. They're in their 30s now. I don't know them. I don't know my wife anymore. I'm all alone. A couple of years after he said that to me, he died in his 60s. What was the purpose of his life? Tony Campolo tells a story and it makes me think about the kind of church that Jesus would want us to be. He does a lot of speaking internationally and he lives on the east coast of America and he flew to speak at a conference in Honolulu, Hawaii. So he went through a few time zones to get there and he got to his hotel and he went to his bed and he woke up at three o'clock in the morning. Bang, fully awake, um, jet lag and uh, starving hungry. And the hotel was all shut down. Um, so you had to go out in the streets of Honolulu, walking about, trying to find somewhere to get a cup of coffee. As a psychologist, I would say, never drink coffee in the middle of the night. You're never going to get back to sleep. Anyway, switch your brain on. But he went for a cup of coffee and a sugar donut. That's what he went for. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Tony, what are you doing? 
you ever talk to the professor of psychology in your university? We went there three o'clock in the morning. He found a greasy spoon called Joe's. And he's in there drinking a cup of coffee, eating his sugar donut. And he says, you can tell it's a greasy spoon. He says, the guy, Joe, comes out and says, what do you want? <laughs> and he says, oh, what you got? He says, oh, coffee, donuts. I'll take a coffee and a donut. And so he says, Joe goes to the, the donut display area and wipes his hand and picks up the donut, thuds it on the plate. There you go, there's your donut. He says, one of those kind of places. And he says, I'm drinking my cup of coffee, eating my donut, and in spills about a dozen girls. And he says, I can't help but hear the conversation. And it's ladies of the night, chatting away about what's been happening. And one of the girls says, it's my birthday tomorrow. And the girls, one of the girls said to her, so what do you want us to do? Throw a party for you? She says, no, I'm just saying it's my birthday. She says, another one started making fun of her. Oh, you want us to bake you a cake? She says, I'm just saying it's my birthday. And it wouldn't matter. I've never had a birthday party in my life. I've never, ever had a birthday cake in my life. Why should I expect one now? And as the girls went away, Tony Campolo speaks to, to Joe, the owner, and he says, do you know these girls? Yes, yeah, they're in every night about three o'clock in the morning. He said, do you know the girl that's about to have the birthday tomorrow? He says, ah, that's Sarah. He says, what do you think about us throwing a birthday party for Sarah? He says, the Holy Spirit was speaking to her. He says, what do you think about throwing a birthday party for Sarah? And he says, Joe's face up. He says, I like that idea. That's a brilliant idea. And he shouts to his wife, hey, Jane, this guy's got an idea to throw a birthday party for Sarah. And Jane comes out and he says, oh, that's a mister, that's a terror, that's a fantastic idea. You, you don't know, you wouldn't think by, by uh, um, Sarah's occupation that she's a nice girl, but she's the nicest girl in this town. She's the sweetest girl. She's always kind to everybody. Yeah, we should do that. Tony Campos says, right, okay, I'll go and buy some decorations and, uh, and I'll buy a cake. And Joe says, no, no. The cake's my thing. And Tony Campbell going, no, kind of cake we're going to get. <laughs> so they arranged to come back at 2 o'clock the next morning. Tony Campbell goes to the supermarket, buys a whole lot of decorations. They come back in and they make this greasy spoon look absolutely fantastic. There's decorations everywhere, balloons everywhere. And Joe's baked his birthday cake, put all the candles on it and iced it. Happy birthday, Sarah. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, sure enough, um, Tony got to Joe to put the word out, and a lot of the girls came in early, so they were all gathered there all, all early, and Tony says, whenever she comes in, we're all going to shout, happy birthday. So when Sarah came in, they all shouted at the one time, happy birthday, Sarah. He said, I've never seen someone so shocked in all my life. I thought she was going to pass out. And Joe came forward with his birthday cake with the candles on it, and Sarah started crying, saying, for me, said, yeah, for you. Blow out the candles. And she couldn't. She was so upset. So Joe blew them out and sprayed the whole cake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then said, right, cut the cake, Sarah. Cut the cake. And she said, I don't want to cut the cake. It's too beautiful. You have to cut the cake. It's what you do. She says, can I go and show my mum? He said, it's your cake. You can do whatever you want. She said, mum just lives two doors down. I want to show my mum that someone's made me a birthday cake. So she picks up the cake and she carefully walks out of the cafeteria with this cake. So Tony Campolo says, I've now got this cafeteria 
full of about 60 people. They're all crammed in there. He says, there's me, there's a cafeteria owner, his wife. He says, and about 57 prostitutes. And he says, and everybody turns to me. Uh, what happens next? And he says, you know what? Let's pray. So he got all of them. He led them all in a prayer. The most beautiful prayer when he prayed about Sarah. and said, Lord, I just pray that you would come into her life and you would show her what a real father is like and you'd show her what love, true love, is really like and all the damage, everything that this world has thrown at her. I pray, Lord, that you would heal all of that damage and she would be made pure and whole in your sight. He says, when they opened their eyes, he says, all these girls were all crying. And Joe pulled him aside and says, I didn't know you were a preacher. He said, you were, what kind of church do you go to? And he says, sometimes in life you get a moment. And he says, in this moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. These words came into my head. And he says, I go to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three o'clock in the morning. Joe kind of stared for a minute and says, no, you don't. He said, if there was a church like that, even I would go to it. Do you think that's the kind of church that Jesus would lead? What kind of church are we? Jesus was all about seeking and serving the lost. And so let's turn to Luke chapter 15. Jesus told many stories, parables, to try and get people to understand what he was actually saying, what he's talking about. He spoke many parables about the kingdom of God. He spoke in many parables about who God is and the very nature of God. And in Luke chapter 15, he gets a bit of a head of steam here because he actually tells three stories in a row. He's preaching it. He's on fire. He starts off with the parable of the lost sheep. He says, you know what? God's like this. What, what if you had a hundred sheep and 99 of them is okay, but you realize one of them's wandered off. Would you not go off and find that sheep? And when you find it, bring it back safe into the fold. And Jesus said at the end of that parable, there is so much rejoicing in heaven. There's a party thrown in heaven for that one who was lost, who comes back into the fold, the one who was dead and is now alive, the one that was lost but is now saved, all of heaven rejoices. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they've done. If they come back, heaven rejoices. He said, what about, what about if you lose one of your coins in your house? You know, you keep your money in your house and you go to check it and you realize one coins missing you've you've lost a lot of money and you sweep the whole house and you think oh no i've lost that money it's a disaster and eventually after looking really hard you find it do you not call all your friends and say come on and celebrate i thought i was bankrupt but i'm not i've got my money back i found my one pence coin <laughs> and then jesus tells this story about the parable of the lost son in Luke chapter 15, reading from verse 11. If we go to the next slide, Nathan. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, 
the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine who is dead is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields. When he came near to the house, he heard music, dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But with this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. We lost him. Now he's found. I love that parable. I get emotional when I read that parable. So Jesus is the ultimate storyteller. I love when I go on holiday, I always read John Grisham novels. I think John Grisham is a great storyteller. I don't know if you've ever read John Grisham novels. Absolutely superb how this guy crafts a story and you're just absolutely hooked. But I think Jesus is the ultimate storyteller. He really illustrates his point. And I think this is probably his finest hour, I think, in this. You know, he's warming up with the, the lost sheep story, which was good. Very good, yeah. I give him 8 out of 10 for that. Then he comes in with a lost coin. That was a wee short one. He obviously realized I'm really hitting the mark here. Here comes the big belter. Wait till you hear this one, boys. The parable of the lost son. 
I think this is amazing. And the imagery, the extreme imagery that Jesus uses to prove his point really paints a strong picture of how amazing our Father God is. He talks about this father who has two sons. And we are all God's children. It could be one of these sons. But something bizarre happens, and this really would capture the audience that he's talking to. Because in Jewish culture, if a son says, I want my inheritance now, it's, well, it's a scandal, an absolute scandal. The youngest son is actually saying to his father, you know what? I wish you were dead. That's extreme because the inheritance would never be given until the father died. This young upstart says, I can't wait to get out of here. I wish you were dead. Give me what, give me what you, you can right now and I'll take it. What an insult, a scandal. Everybody's hooked. It's the opening chapter of an amazing story and everybody's hooked. I wonder what's going to happen next. This is a cautionary tale. And the intentions of the young son are revealed just a few weeks later when he departs. He takes everything he's got, sells up whatever land he was given. He's all cashed up, ready to go and enjoy life on his terms. And he basically says to his family, I don't want you looking over my shoulder. I don't want to feel guilty about some of the choices I'm going to make. I want complete freedom. I'm going to run away from you. Just like so many people in this world do, they run away from God. The further they can run away from God, the less guilty they feel. They realize what they're doing is wrong. They're crossing lines. But if they can say, I don't believe in God, it gives them a freedom to go and do what they want. Like the son here, who says, oh, I wish you were dead. I don't need you in my life. I'm out of here. Sayonara, I'm off. I'm way down to London to live it up. So he goes to this far off land and he does what he thinks is going to bring him life in all its fullness. Everything this world has to offer. And he spends all his money on trying to win people over. Throwing the big parties, bringing the women in, the, the wine, the song. And pretty soon, he becomes pretty popular and loves it, so he's spending more and more money. And within a short space of time, he's blowing the lot on the penthouse apartment, the Hugo Boss suit. And then a recession hits the land, a famine comes. All of a sudden, he's got no money. And all these people that he was extravagant with, turns out, well, they're not my friends at all. They care nothing about me. I have no money. They've disappeared. And then the next part of the story, again, an absolute crowd catcher as Jesus telling the story. For this Jewish boy, the only job he can get is to feed the pigs, the most unclean ritual animal in, in Jewish culture. Don't eat anything from the pig. It's filthy. It's unclean. Don't touch it. And yet he has to go and feed the pigs. And he's in such a desperate state that he yearns to eat what the pigs are eating. That's a bleak picture, is it not? Jesus is capturing everybody with this story. This son has made such a big mistake. His life is upside down. It's a disaster. An absolute disaster. Everybody in the crowd's kind of thinking, I can't wait till this story's over because I'm going to tell everybody about this. The Jewish son that said to his father, I wish you were dead, and then blew it all and ended up feeding the pigs. Oh, this is a great story. The son has an epiphany. 
what a mess I've made of my life. What an absolute disaster zone. What a train wreck. I'm trying to eat what the pigs are eating here. And I, I was so disrespectful and horrible to my father. And yet my father has never done a thing wrong. He even loves his servants. And they have more than they can eat. Look at me. I need to go back into my father's care. I need to go back to my father. He will make my life better. But I'm not fit to be one of his sons anymore. I've burnt that bridge. But I still need to convince him, the son thinks. I still need to have this convincing, Oscar-winning speech to even get taken in as a servant to make my life better. So from there to coming back to his father, he rehearses this speech over and over and over and over and over because it's his one chance to get back in and make his life better. But what he doesn't realize is his father never stopped loving him. His father loved him completely. It didn't matter what he said. It didn't matter what he did. His father still loved him. Reminds me of a story about a, a woman in Brazil. True story. A young girl wanted to leave her little town in Brazil and she wanted to go to um, Sao Paulo and uh, make her fame and fortune there. And her mother, who was older and wiser, says, it's just you and I in this family. I'll break my heart if you go, but I think it's a big mistake if you go because so many young girls have went to the big city to try and make it and they don't make it. And life becomes not a dream, but a nightmare. And terrible things might happen to you. You'd be much better here. Little girl says, there's nothing for me in this town. My life is in the big city. That's where I want to go. And she goes. This story was years ago before mobile phones came out. And the mother knows what's going to happen to her daughter. And so the mother says, I'm going to spend everything I've got. And she makes photographs of herself with a message on it. And she spends all her money on this, getting to Sao Paulo, putting these photographs up in every seedy hotel that she can find on the notice boards. And one night, sure enough, this girl, her whole life has turned into a nightmare. And she's become a prostitute. And she's walking down the stairs after being with a client. And at the corner of her eye, she sees a picture of her mother on the notice board. And she runs over and she picks up this photograph of the notice board. And it's a picture of her mother smiling and says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've become. I love you. Just come home. And she does. And in this story, the prodigal son, the father, thinks of his son every day. I don't care what you've said to me. I don't care what you've done. Just come home. If you could just come home, that's all I want. And Father God says that to each and every one of us. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've said. Just come home and we'll throw a party, a celebration. So the father sees his son far off and he runs towards him. This old man who's probably never ran for decades 
runs towards his son. He's so full of joy. My son is coming home. And he runs to him. But the son's not seen this really. He's got his rare speech in his head. And I've got to get the speech out. Father, I have sinned against you. The father's not even listening to it. He throws his arms around the son. Embraces him with love. Kisses him. And he does three very symbolic things after that. He says, come and put sandals on my son's feet. The boy has no sandals on his feet. And in Jewish society back then, the Jews wore sandals. The slaves had nothing on their feet. So he restores the son back into the family by putting sandals on him. Bring the best robe and put it on him. His son was bankrupt. But he puts a robe which is a sign of prosperity and puts it around his shoulders. And he asks, bring a ring and put it on his finger. And what he meant was, bring the family ring. It was a ring of authority. It had the family emblem on it. Such that if the son was to write a letter to some of the people that worked in their fields or to another household, to seal up that letter, they'd roll it up on a scroll, they'd burn wax, they'd put the wax, melted wax on the, the, the edge of it, and then they'd press the ring into it because as the family emblem to show that it's an official document and then the wax would set and have the family emblem on it. His father immediately restored them with all the authority of the household. And God does the same with us. No longer are we slaves to sin. We're in his family. We have his sandals on our feet. No longer are we bankrupt. We have all of our father's possessions are part of us because we are in his family. We are heirs to our father's kingdom. And he gives us the ring of authority. He gives us all authority. Jesus says it. He said it to the 12 before he sent them out. He said it to the 72 before he sent them out. I give you all authority over sickness and over the demons and go cast out the demons, heal the sick, and tell people about the kingdom of God. And that's what he does for all of us. The kingdom of God is within you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't our Father God amazing? Do you feel bankrupt today? You have all of the possessions of our Father are yours. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. That meant something back in Jewish society. It's a bit weird in Scotland today when you say, ah, he's pretty wealthy, he's got cattle on a thousand hills. Well, there's hills all over Scotland and cattle's not very worth very much. Maybe he's got a thousand skyscrapers full of businesses. It's maybe a more modern translation. Everywhere Jesus went, he took the kingdom of God with him. That was his mission. That's what he modeled to the 12. That's what he modeled to the 72. And that's what he says to his church today. Take the kingdom of God with you. It's within you. The 12 experienced the kingdom of God. The 72 experienced the kingdom of God when he sent them out. As did the wedding guests in Cana who drank the best of wine. The 5,000 who feasted on fish and bread when they didn't have a peace with them. Zacchaeus, who gave money back to those that he had cheated, he experienced the kingdom of God, as did the woman, as did the woman caught in adultery, who was not condemned, the woman at the well, who was shown respect, 
the woman who was bleeding for many years, who was healed, Jairus's daughter, who was brought back to life, the widow's son, who got out of his coffin in the middle of his own funeral procession, the blind man who was given sight, he experienced the, the kingdom of God, the paralyzed man who could now walk, the ten lepers whose skin was made clean, the man at the pool of Siloam who received his long-awaited healing, the Roman officer whose servant was healed. The man who was full of demons and chained in a cemetery was given peace and a sound mind. Lazarus, who walked free from the tomb, he experienced the kingdom of God. The men on the road to Emmaus and the five other, 500 other people who are mentioned in the New Testament who saw the resurrected Christ in the flesh, as did Paul on the road to Damascus, he experienced the kingdom of God as did the billions of Christians all over the world right now, just like us, who have repented of their sins, fallen upon the grace of God, given their lives, and found salvation and life in all its fullness, and have the kingdom of God fully alive within them. We have the kingdom of God within us. What are we doing about it? Are we releasing it every day? Are we looking to the example that Jesus has modeled for us and step out in faith and say, yeah, I'm going to do just what you asked me to do. I'm going to be just like you because you've given me all authority. Is that who we're going to be? Is that the church that we're going to be? I look forward to the night that we in Whitburn Pentecostal Church throw a birthday party for prostitutes at three in the morning. Or something like that. Or something like that. If we are not like that church, we need to do something about it. The kingdom of God is here right now. It's here and it is yet to come. It is within us as a foretaste of our future. This world does not know the kingdom of God and yet it's within us. So it's our obligation it's our opportunity to go and share it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are citizens of your kingdom. What a kingdom it is. What a loving God you are. Father, we are humbled that you would welcome us back into the fold. We've all at some point had that rehearsed speech. But Lord, you've thrown your arms around us. You've embraced us. You've kissed us on the cheek. You've put sandals on our feet, a robe around our shoulders, a ring of authority on our hand. We have your authority. We have your prosperity. We are in your family. Father, we are eternally grateful. Father, help us to release your kingdom within our very lives. For your kingdom is attractive. Your kingdom is beautiful. Your kingdom is full of love. Love that the world does not know. Lord, help us to serve you. Help us to fellowship with you. Help us to worship you. Help us to represent you in a perfect way. Lord, we bring these things before you. In the name of your wonderful Son, took all our sins away and rose victorious from the grave so that we can spend eternity with you.
Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.